This is a HeadGum Podcast. This is why you're single. This is why you're single. This is why you're single. Ba, 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 da. This is why you're single. Ba, 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 da. Welcome to the This Is Why You're Single podcast. I'm Laura Lane. And I'm Angela Sparrow. We are the co-writers of the book, This Is Why You're Single. Every week we highlight a different dating topic. This week's episode is Finding Life Satisfaction. Which we all want to do, don't we? I sure do. Yes, me too. Also in the lineup, we're talking about what's new in dating news, a major way your parents can screw up your love life, and the therapeutic effects of sleeping with an ex. Then we're diving into the mailbox to answer your listener questions, including one listener who feels like an outcast for never having been in a relationship, and a male listener who wants to know if he should use dating apps to make female friends. Uh, I'm going to probably say no, but I, yeah. I want to find out what is it. We'll get into it. <laughs> we'll get but, into uh, it later. Uh, but first, we want to welcome this week's guest. She's a clinical psychologist and cognitive behaviorist. She's also the host of a YouTube series called A Path to Sustainable Life Satisfaction. And she is the author of a new workbook of the same name. Please welcome Jennifer Gutman to the show. Welcome to Hi, This Is Why You're Single. thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Hi. Thank you for coming on. So for those who don't know, can you explain what CBT is? What is cognitive behavior therapy? Sure. So cognitive behavior therapy is a kind of therapy where what we try to do is um, do sort of an evaluation of what people's cognitions are, their thoughts, with an idea that if we can make people's thoughts more adaptive, then we can help people have uh, more effective behaviors and more effective emotions so that they can reach um, the most effective and productive a lot lives for themselves, and so and they can be the most satisfied. And what led you to this form of therapy? When I was in graduate school, they gave us sort of an introduction to all different kinds of therapies, and I would say that cognitive behavior therapy seemed like the best solution to me to help people the most effectively, most efficiently, and the fastest. I'm super excited to have you on the show because, fun fact, CBT actually changed my life. Wait, oh, really? I, oh. I started going to uh, cognitive therapy when I was younger, and that's what led me to like starting to do comedy writing and then our sketch show and this podcast. Ah, we we have awesome. it all. I know. I wrote my therapist ah. an email years later being ah. like, thanks for everything. Well, what did your therapist do? She just like held me accountable to like, she was like, well, you know, what What are these things that you want to do? And I was like, oh, no, I've always like liked comedy, but I'm afraid to do it. And she was like, sign up for a class. What's the worst that could happen? That was like the big question that always was yeah, coming up. Yeah, right, like, exactly. What's the worst that could that happen? happen? And you, they like, you know, you walk through that question. Right. And of course, in my mind, there's like a million terrible things that could happen. And then she's like, I okay. Could, you're like, if, I, could be ba- I could be embarrassed. Exactly. I could, I what could, could be, be the, worse than that? I could be the worst person in the class. What if I'm right. not funny? Yeah. <laughs> but she was basically like, yeah, what if you're not funny? So what? There's exactly. lots of unfunny That's people. Forensic- like, you'll find out. You'll do something else. Exactly. That's the forensic analysis. What's the evidence? Like, yes. why do you think that? What's the worst that could happen? Yeah. I'm told I'm a mind reader also. That yeah. I try to mind read. I call it fortune telling. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Fortune telling. <laughs> um my own little problem but so you say the majority of your clients that come to you come to you because they say they don't feel happy but you say happy is a dirty word why is that because if you look up happy in the dictionary actually the definition of happy in the dictionary is contentment and what's interesting about happy in the dictionary is that the synonyms for happy in the dictionary are things like 
merry and buoyancy and radiance, which is kind of interesting because if you look up the definition of contentment in the dictionary, that is not what the definition of contentment is. So I think it's interesting that sort of the synonyms are a bastardization of what the definition of happy is, and people have sort of taken as the definition, definition of happy what really the synonyms of happy are. And so because of that, people are looking for what I would consider more of a high or a dopamine push as what is their idea of what, how they're supposed to feel on a regular basis and how what they believe is not sustainable. Whereas the real definition of happy, which is contentment or satisfaction in my belief, is something that is sustainable with highs and lows in between because balance is a sustainable emotion, whereas highs or merry, radiant, buoyancy, those are not sustainable emotions. I think I read an article, so I have a new baby, as many of you listeners know, and I read an article about raising, everyone says, I just want my child to be happy, I just want my child to be happy, and that's something you hear a lot when you're talking to other parents, and and they said, you know, that's a very unrealistic goal, and it's also an unfair burden to put on your child, because kind of like you're saying, what you should strive for is a content child, someone that's content, but if you want someone to always be constantly happy, that's a very kind of like elusive goal yeah and I also think that because I really believe vernacular and words are so important it's really important to say to a child that you want them to be satisfied or you want them to be content as opposed to happy and it's interesting because in my practice when I say to people maybe instead of saying that you want to be happy you want to change the words around and say I want to be satisfied it's amazing how there's a perspective shift in terms of what their goals are when they start to think for a second and pause and think about what satisfied would mean to them as opposed to happy because that is kind of too high of a of a mission because it's not sustainable so because when I think think about like if I'm like if you ask me right now like are you happy like that's kind of a hard thing I I feel like I'm happy happy does feel more like of like a a deep high like if I find out I get good news I'm like I'm like ah Oh my right. God. Right. But if you were like that all the time, it yeah. would actually be insufferable. Insufferable is <laughs> a good word. Yeah. <laughs> but right now, doing the podcast, I feel very content. Right. You know? But I'm not like, ah, oh my God, I'm doing a podcast. Because right. that, that is, it's so annoying. And so asking someone, like, are you happy in life? It's like, I mean, I guess, like, I have really happy high moments, but am I typically content? Yes. Like, that is a much easier question for me to answer. And I feel like I'm much more. Uh, obtainable goal in life in general and that was like a really that was like a wide awakening for me when I read that essay yeah exactly like I think uh, satisfaction or contentment is a better state of being than happy which seems is more fleeting and momentary you know I think about happy as when I go to the beach and it's been I've been in Manhattan on cold days for a long period of time then I get to fly somewhere and I go see a beach and that's really pretty and I feel happy but when probably I see the only water. when you see the beach when I see it exactly <laughs> when I get there I but then see an hour it, later and then you're later content like, okay exactly yeah. exactly or if I go I happen to love sunflowers so if I go somewhere and there's a field of sunflowers in that moment I feel happy and then again, like I get used to it and I accommodate and then I feel satisfied that I'm among all of those sunflowers. Exactly. So then your brain does accommodate and you get back to balance. But that makes sense that you get back to balance because that's what your brain should do, get back to balance. How does this relate to relationships? Because I feel like a lot of people date people hoping that the other person will make them happy, which number one is the big mistake <laughs> because yeah, other right. people can't make you happy right. and that right. is quite a burden to put on another person. Um, but in terms of vernacular, when you're dating somebody, how important is that and how does this think, way of thinking, uh, how should people apply it to the dating world? 
Well, I'm going to hundred percent agree with you. I think that it's a huge burden to put anything on another person. I don't think we should delegate any part of our sense of well-being, whether it's satisfaction or happiness, to another person. So I agree with you. And I also think that what happens in the relationship is you can get that moment of um, happiness or honeymoon phase or buoyancy when you first meet somebody, but then it does sort of blend into a sense of satisfaction. And it can also, you know, certain habits of people can start to become annoying. And then I think that people get confused. Oh, I'm supposed to be, have that, you know, initial feeling all the time, but that initial feeling is not sustainable because people are people and we're all, all human beings are flawed. So we have to sort of balance out the flaws with the good parts of people. And then what you end up when you balance out the good parts of people and the flaws of people is some kind of balance with somebody that you care about and understanding that you're accepting the good parts of them with their flaws. And in the beginning, when you first meet somebody, all you notice is the great parts. And then eventually that sort of eases into what's more reasonable, which is a sense of contentment with somebody accepting the great parts of them the flaws about them, and then and then really it is more about balance than it is just about the honeymoon phase. Um, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. Uh, so another thing that I think what you do relates to dating and relationships is um, helping people with their self-confidence because I feel like you can't really be in a healthy relationship until, you know, you love yourself yeah. and you build up your confidence and it's something that a lot of our listeners struggle with. And you recently wrote about the three small daily changes that you can use to boost your self-confidence. Um, can you talk about those? I know yeah. one was complete the tasks you start. Yeah. Um, how does that relate to self-confidence? So it's important when you – a lot of times I get people coming into my office and they – are frustrated because they feel like they're getting, they feel like imposters in their lives or frauds in their lives. And that's because they have started some things and maybe even closed some things in their lives, but there are a lot of things in their lives that they've left unclosed. And they'll be getting a lot of praise for the things in their lives that they have closed. So maybe people are good at closing things at work and they'll get a lot of reinforcement for what they've closed at work. But can, you, can you give me what you mean by closing yeah, and leaving that's things good, open? That's a good question. So let's say somebody's been really successful at work and they they may have closed a big deal at work or they've been they've received a promotion at work or something like that. So maybe they've completed the rubric that's been complete uh, put to them that they need to uh, complete in order to get a promotion at work or to complete a deal or something like that. And then they get a lot of praise at work because they got a promotion or they got a raise or completed a deal. And while they're receiving that praise, a lot of my clients will say that they don't feel so great about receiving the praise. They feel a little bit like an imposter because they'll think about all the other aspects of their lives in which they're not performing as well as they're doing at work. And if you dig into that, it's because they may have a lot of things left undone that are haunting them at home. Some of them are laid on bills. Some of them have not reached out to family members in a long time. So they have phone calls that are left undone. They have uh, things that are disorganized at home. They have um, make promises that they've made to people that they haven't followed through on. So while they're getting this praise at work for how great they are and how on top of things they are, they don't feel like they have completed uh, all of the tasks in their lives. And so because of that, that lowers their self-confidence. They know that they're not living up to their competency and that makes them feel badly about themselves. So what I say to people is that in order to continue to build your self-confidence, you need to look at all areas of your life and the more things that you can complete in all areas of your life, the more self-confident you'll be. And if you don't 
you know, as long as you look across all venues. I found that going to therapy actually helped me with that because it just, like I said before, held me accountable. It's somebody asking, like checking in each week and being like, did you do that thing? Did you check that thing off your list? Because, you know, I can have a running list of things that I want to accomplish and it feels really good to cross them out. But I'm I'm more likely to cross them out if somebody's following up about them. <laughs> so I go to, I go to therapy every week. It's just we just like talk about stuff. How do I know what type of therapy I'm going to? Mm. That's a good question. You should, you can ask. <laughs> yeah, what is this? <laughs> what, is, what is this that I'm doing? So the therapist will tell you what kind of therapy that they have been trained in, and whether it's psychodynamic or solution focused or cognitive behavior therapy or some LMFT is that anything I'm like looking <laughs> you're at googling no, your therapist licensed mammal licensed marital and family therapist yeah so usually a licensed marital and family therapist will also have some kind of background in some other kind of like maybe she's a family therapist and she's done a lot of family work uh, and then there's specific training in family therapy so there's family therapy um like Ackerman Institute is a family therapy, a kind of family therapy that training that's different than cognitive behavior therapy. It's different than solution focused. It's different than psychodynamic. But that person's specific um, wheelhouse would be around fam- family dynamics. So hers says cognitive behavioral, culturally sensitive, family systems, integrative, mindfulness based, psychodynamic, and relational. Can you be like a little so bit that's of everything? everything. <laughs> <laughs> so that's everything. I mean, <laughs> um, I think, I think, <laughs> can you be everything? I mean, I, I think that you can use different approaches or you, no? You, I think you can. I think some of it has to do with how deep a dive you've done into all of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, like for me, I have specific training in cognitive behavioral therapy and then additional training like I have gotten additional training in solution focus because that's a similar thing that you'd get for cognitive behavior therapy I have additional training in eye movement desensitization reprocessing because which is EMDR because I see a lot of people who've been are survivors of trauma but I don't have additional training in psychodynamic therapy so I would not say that I provide psychodynamic training therapy although when I was in graduate school did they give me background on psychodynamic training uh, therapy of course they did but I haven't done a deep enough dive into that for me to say that I'm an expert on psychodynamic therapy because I would not say that I am that makes sense so going back to Angela's question about self-confidence the other two small changes that you say are make your own decisions and face your fears can you expand on that a little bit and things our listeners can do to help with their self-confidence that might help them with dating sure so I think what's important is that a lot of people delegate decision making to other people because they think that other people might have a better sense of how what's the right thing for them than they in fact have for themselves so people often delegate that decision to one person or consensus and that can happen in dating too people might say you know bring a guy around to their friends and ask their friends what do you think of him do you like him and then based on the consensus make a decision about whether to continue in in that relationship or not people do that with family also i've had clients of mine come in to therapy with me and tell me that there was a guy that they really liked, but they brought the guy home. And even though they really liked him, there were family members that didn't feel so great about it. And so because of that, all of a sudden, a guy that they really liked went from someone that they admired to somebody that they really didn't. And all of a sudden, 
my experience was that they had delegated the decision about whether to pursue the relationship to family members as opposed to themselves. And then when so they, you don't hold like a very see, I think for for us, we're like if your family doesn't like it, maybe they're catching something <laughs> that you're missing. But you don't you disagree? I my feeling about it is that it's important to learn to trust yourself, and so and that if a person believes in their authenticity and can information gather effectively for themselves that builds self-confidence in your belief in your in your belief in your decision-making ability and that if you information gather effectively look for look for red flags are aware of any of your own personal history that's going to a affect your decision or b that uh, your own need to be in a relationship so that you're focusing more on the relationship than the person might affect how much information gathering you're doing and you're aware of all of these things, that you should lean into your ability to start to trust yourself, trust your judgment, make a decision on your own as opposed to delegate those decisions to the outside world because I have seen people delegate too much of it to family members and then later on regret that they didn't see relationships all, all the way through. Even if it had ended up that it it did indeed not work out, they were not sure what would have happened because they let the, the course was too short. That's interesting. Yeah, I guess it's like listening to the opinions of family and friends, but ultimately making the yes, decision exactly. your own. Right. Yeah. Which we would agree with. Yeah. I've yeah. found that even if my friends and family have said like that they don't like somebody, it, it kind of can't stop me. When exactly. I when, right. when I do like, maybe that's just because I'm I'm like have like so much confidence in my own decisions. I'm like, you guys don't know what the hell you're talking about. Um like I remember that when I was forever liked this one particular guy who he in all fairness like I was definitely friend zoned he never had the same feelings for me but that wasn't the reason that my friends didn't like him they were just like I don't get what you see in him he's like not that cute and like <laughs> he's kind of nerdy and I was like I don't care about any of that like in my eyes he's hot he's smart he's interesting I I mean and I still think I still think the world of this guy um so in that sense like, See, but you didn't delegate the decision. I didn't to anybody delegate. Else. You I wasn't asking either. their opinion. They right. kept giving it, <laughs> like, and I was like, but, I was like, I don't care what you think. I'm still obsessed with this guy. He's never. That's, yeah, that's great. People give unsolicited advice all the time. Yeah, and it's one thing to hear it; it's another thing to act on it. <laughs> Absolutely. What about face your fears? How so? Facing fears also builds self confidence because a lot of times what we do is we live in a homeostatic place where we don't go out and sort of check ourselves on our competency level and instead to stay, you know, are afraid of being afraid. And I think that each time we do something that we might either avoid or do something that makes us wonder whether we can do something that's new and different or challenging, each time we do that, we sort of are embracing our fear, allowing fear to be a co-captain in life instead of something that we run from. And when we challenge our competency levels, it helps build self-confidence. And that's a really positive thing. And I think that's a positive thing for people of all ages. What is like an example of a, a small way you can face fear on a on a daily basis or on a regular basis? Like how Angela faced comedy. Right. Like that. Yes. <laughs> that, that is, I mean, so that is uh, something that I did. Like I can give you an example of something that I did when I was practicing this on myself because I practice all these things on myself was that 
navigating Manhattan in a car was really easy for me as long as I was on, you know, the main name streets and the, you know, the streets that were numbered. But once I got into Tribeca, Grunge Village, the West Village, and it was all sorts of silly names when I didn't know where I was going, without a navigation system, I was, you know, worried that I was going to lose my way. And so what I would do on the weekends is just drive down there with a nap GPS off and decide like, well, I'm just going to drive into the midst of it and see how long it takes me to get out. And <laughs> you survived. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but that was a, a good experience that I could show myself that I could get out. That's very cool. That reminds me actually recently we told the story on the podcast of how when I was younger, I was afraid to make phone calls. So my my therapist had me make a prank phone call to a pizza place oh, to have me get over it. Yes, exactly. Which was mean to the pizza place, but it did help. <laughs> she was like, just call and be really stupid and goofy and they're going to think you're weird and nothing bad will happen. And I did it and I hated every second of it, but it was true. I hung the phone and... I was still alive at the end. See, that would be, <laughs> but that definitely would be facing your fear. Yeah, I mean, I remember you facing your fears when we, when I met you, and you were like, "I'm just a writer. I don't perform." And I was like, "Angela, you have to take this workshop with me." And you're like, "They make you perform at the end." I was like, "So freaking what? You'll be in the background. We also get to write what you perform, so we'll write you the smallest role." And like, yep. and you did it, and then like cut. And then like cut to six months later, you're performing in front of sold out stages in New York City and like killing it. Exactly. And that was a huge confidence builder. And it's not like I was like working towards becoming like an actress at that point. It was just, yeah, like the just the the sheer thrill of conquering that fear changed me as a person. Awesome. I know. <laughs> well, we're going to talk more later on in the podcast about how to have a sustainable life to have how to have sustainable life satisfaction. Um, but very quickly, we are going to take a sponsor break. We would like to thank our sponsor, Quip. I love Quip. They are a subscription based toothbrush service that I was using before they were even a sponsor on our show, which is. How you know we really love something. I mean, we can love something that I've discovered from people being sponsors, but I was using Quip and you know what? I gifted it for Nick. This is, I'm not like, you know, making this shit up. I like (laughs) gifted it for Nick because I was like, I want Nick to have good teeth. I want to make sure he's taking care of himself. He's not like the best person at like buying a new toothbrush when he needs to. And like most people are not good at brushing their teeth. And I think he was doing it too quick. But with Mm -hmm. Quip, you know, they have the little vibrations that tell you when the two minutes is up. And like they send you your your new toothbrush heads when you need it. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to take care of my man's teeth, get him a cool looking toothbrush. And so I got it for him. So this way, I think it's a good gift for people this year. It really is. And I think it's great. You know, you got it for your significant other. But I also think it's really good for somebody who like you don't know that well. And you're like, I don't know what to get them. Everybody brushes their teeth. And everyone will appreciate having uh, toothbrush replacements just sent to their door. Yeah. They also have new colors. They have, you know, four sleek metallic handles, two poppy plastics and a red brush uh, that gives back and a statement making black brush. Oh. So a black brush is cool. You and I have like the rose goldy copper one, right? We have matching toothbrushes. Yes, I'm I'm very into it. And it's something that they'll they'll think about you all the time because it's a gift that they're gonna use twice a day. Yeah, they're gonna stick it in their mouth twice a day and think of you. How nice. It is nice. Um, so a little bit more about the toothbrushes. They have sensitive sonic vibrations that are gentle enough on your sensitive gums and a built-in timer with guiding pulses to remind you when to switch sides. 
guide so you don't even have to think when you're brushing your teeth. Um, Quip also makes holiday travels clean and easy with their multi-use cover that mounts to the mirror and unmounts to slide over the bristles for on-the-go brushing. I really do love that the, it comes with a travel case. It's yes. made my life very easy. It's so nice, right? And you can just bring it with you on the go. That's why we love Quip, and it's why they have over 5,000 verified five-star reviews. Quip looks like a big ticket tech gift with a stocking stuffer price starting at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash single right now, you'll get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. But, you know, you don't have to tell your gifty that you got the hookup, but you did. That's your first refill pack free with getquip.com slash single. All right, it is time for us to jump into what's in the news. Angela, what have you been reading about in the news? Okay, so I found an article by our former guest, Jenna Birch, on Soloish, which we're. A we fan love of. Jenna Birch. We love jo- Jenna Birch. We love Soloish, um, which is the dating column in the Washington Post. She wrote about knowing your attachment style could make you a smarter dater. And I was super excited to find this because I've been hearing about this attachment stuff everywhere. I don't know about you. Like I went out with my friend recently and she was like, oh, you have to read this book. Like you're a dating expert. (laughs) Right. Yes, I am. Uh, So you would love it. And it's called uh, Attached, the New Science of Adult Attachment and How It Could Help You Find and Keep Love. I mean, I hear about attachment a lot because I have a baby and they talk about like the baby having attachment and like how to not screw up your child, basically. That is exactly how it relates to And you do have a lot of power in your hands. And how you're raising Rilo because it will affect how he dates later. It's actually terrifying because a lot of the moms are doing like the cried out method when their babies aren't Ooh. sleeping through the night. And I'm like, am I going to, if I try, I, I've always was like, I'm never going to do that. That's cruel. But then, you know, your baby's not sleeping through the night. And I'm like, if I do that, am I going to find out a new study is going to come out in like 10 years that said I like totally screwed up my child? No. 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 <laughs> okay, good. No, that, no. no, you won't. Only because that's been... You know, definitely the thing to do for a very long time. And we've studied it and studied it and it's fine. Really? Yes. Good. All right. I'm going to talk to you later after the podcast because I don't even think this had anything to do with Angela's story, but I <laughs> no, it I is need to know. Somewhat related, I think. Well, I just okay. didn't want him to like not be attached to me or have like no, attachment was- issues and not trust people yeah. and like all the thing, all these things. Be I think- a fuck boy. Be a fuck boy. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, I just, I'm the like, worst fate for your child. I just don't want to do anything to fuck him up. I don't want to yeah. be too attached, not attached. You know, we all feel like we're like getting over our childhood. And I like look at what my parents did. And like, I love them. They're my best friends, all that. But I'm like, there's a couple things they totally did that were, that like fucks me up for a while that I do in therapy. And I don't want to do that to my child. I don't want him to go to therapy for the shit that I did. Probably well, talking about him on a podcast is going to be one thing to go to therapy about. <laughs> He'll have proof for his therapist. Yeah. Uh, So, okay. So the people who wrote this book, uh, they say infants are born with an innate need to attach and attachment theory highlights the adaptations we make to get our needs met. So this was pioneered by a psychologist in the 1950s named John Bowlby. And uh, they came up, there are three different attachment styles that you could possibly have. There's the anxious style. Anxious people are often preoccupied with their relationships and tend to worry about their partner's ability to love them back. There's avoidant and those people equate intimacy with a loss of independence and constantly try to minimize closeness. And then there's the third category, secure people, and they feel comfortable with intimacy and are usually warm and loving. And I took a quiz online and apparently I'm secure and I was shocked. Really? (laughs) Frankly. (laughs) Yes. But uh, then I read that actually most people are secure 
So estimates suggest roughly 50% of the population is secure, 20% is anxious, and 25% is avoidant. And then there's 5% that are fearful, which is a very rare fourth type. Um, do you know a lot about the attachment theory? Have you have you heard of this? I, I do. Yeah. I know about Bowlby. <laughs> and I know about attachment theory. And I know about what you're talking about. I do think that it does impact relationships some, although I would agree that most people are securely attached. Uh, I think that you can see in relationships some anxious and or avoidant behavior in terms of how people impact the, you know, are in relationships with significant others. Although I think that there are other things that can impact it even more than attachment theory. Like what? Um, I think that losses over the like uh, other losses after primary attack so this is related to primary attachment with a parent or in early very early childhood but i think that sometimes uh, traumas and losses that happen a little bit later can also affect intimacy a lot and so people that don't have as much of that sometimes or do a little bit better with intimacy and commitment. And sometimes people that um, have had a trauma or a loss later struggle a little bit more with intimacy and commitment because they don't see relationship status as potentially stable. They see it a little bit more with potential of abandonment and pain. So that's something that they need to work through a little bit more. Like what type of later losses? Like if they've lost a parent... Um, or if they've lost a significant an, an early strong relationship with a partner, uh, if they've lost, um, if they've had a trauma in their lives, uh, an assault. Sometimes those people have a hard time and struggle with intimacy or commitment. Sometimes people who have uh, ado- been adopted, things like that. Now you could say that that has to do with this bulby issue, except that a lot of times with kids that were adopted we don't know exactly what their you know what happened with it in terms of their attachment because we don't know how they were brought up i just read an article about second chance adoption and it's when parents who adopt a child children then give them up for whatever reason uh oh. when they're like 10 years old i'm like okay you understand how much you are fucking up that child's life like that child's going to have attachment issues. It was a whole, I think it was in Newsweek. It was a whole article about called quote unquote second chance adoptions. And legally it's the exact same process as if you put your biological child up for adoption. Like, because legally when you adopt someone, like they are your child. And, and it was these parents. Why were they doing that? Um, it was like, was like very kind of, uh, vague like this one girl was the story they opened the story with a girl that I think is like 10 years old like very cute sweet girl they had three biological children and her and they said something about how the family's no longer religious but she was it 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 truly made no sense and it and on the website was this picture of this like beautiful sweet cute little girl and this being like put up for adoption a second chance adoption and yeah I just think about all the attachment issues she's gonna have uh, to work through. I mean, even honestly, like, what it makes me think of is so sad that I, this is what I went to, but I went to like, even when you think about these poor, like, 
animals like like puppies and animals and like that if you think about them going from home to home to home like I feel badly enough for them when you just said that I can't imagine that right yeah with a child also and now you're talking about a picture of a cute girl I'm thinking about it's a picture of a cute dog or beautiful I know and I'm thinking how could this like even this like no my dog is a dog my dog is a person having a third home or a second home how could a person have that many homes it's terrible terrible right I mean do you have any advice of how I cannot screw up my baby right or her dog. Or my dog. <laughs> I mean, I think that in terms of secure attachment for a child, that doesn't have anything to do with sleeping through the night. Like, I think that, <laughs> I actually think it's fine to let a baby cry it out at night. For how long? How long? I mean, actually, as soon as they hit 12 pounds, I I, I am a strong believer in He's letting them. 14, yeah, 14 so and four, a half pounds. Then I think crying it out at night is fine. For the and whole actually, night? I actually think it's really a positive thing for them in terms, because I am a huge believer in building competence and self-confidence, even from that early of an age, which you can do when you let them sleep through the night because... Why? Because what they do is they end up believing that they can be their own sleep association. So what happens is when they cry it out at night, they learn to put themselves into a sleep position and cue themselves to sleep. When you help them to fall asleep, then you become their sleep association. And that actually backhandedly doesn't really help them sleep. Because I know. They I want him to have learning. confidence. Right. It just breaks my little heart when right. I hear him right, cry. Right. So, so I am the mother of two. They're old now but when they were young and I had to go through this I actually could, couldn't tolerate it so my ex-husband had to be the one to deal with it because I I couldn't listen to them cry so I actually went I went to a different room <sighs> where I couldn't hear it and like put on headphones and I was like you know tell me what it's done because I don't want to know. It actually only took two or three days uh, and and he could tolerate listening to the crying. Did you check on it? Did you so, do the fur where you go back in, or you just no. close the door and you just make sure they're not like yeah, like, like he had the monitor. He had the monitor and he would listen, and but he could tolerate not going in, and I couldn't tolerate not going in. But he didn't go in, and it was I think three days for my son, two days for my daughter, and it was. Would you have him sleep in? Did did they have their hands to soothe or pacifier? Or? No, neither one of my kids had a pacifier ever. And, yeah, he's all about um, that passy. And uh, my son didn't thumb suck. My daughter thumb sucked for a little bit. Like, but uh, but they self soothed even without that. Yeah, totally self soothed without. All that. right, and it was great. But I just don't want to secure up my child. In terms of the secure, in terms of the secure attachment, you're doing that already. You you engage in secure attachment behavior by loving on them and hugging them and you know cuddling with them and not leaving them alone to just you know cry during the day you know once you take care of their needs you know if they're if they're hungry you attend to it if they're wet you attend to it if they are looking for stimulation then you know you put them in something so that they can have stimulation you don't just leave them all alone and so because of that if they're hurt you attend to it those are the things that help develop secure attachment okay so that's how i avoid what what angela's talking about yeah and hey self-soothing is a skill that will come in handy when he's an adult this and he's true. heartbroken. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, what are you reading about, Laura? So I've been reading The Cut, our favorite from New York Magazine. This is an article called The Therapeutic Effects of Sleeping with an Ex, written by Edith Zimmerman. So I'm curious to know your thoughts on this. Uh, so she writes, is falling back into bed with someone you are trying to get over a terrible idea, as pretty much every country music song tells us, uh, as common sense would have us believe, or could it actually be fine, even helpful? Apparently, according to a new study published in the Journal of Archives of Sexual Behavior, it might be the latter. It could be fine, even helpful. Although the authors acknowledge that the world's 
is probably raising their eyebrows. They assert that no one had actually done the research to prove what we all assume to be true. So they set out to do the research. So uh, what they did for this study was they had 113 people from ages 18 to 55 in relationships that were under two years. And then they chronicled their feelings for their exes in daily diaries. The researchers found that even though the participants who pursued sexual encounters with their exes purported reported feeling more attached to those exes, the feeling of attachment attachment again, mm. wasn't found to be associated with other negative breakup variables such as breakup distress or intrusive thoughts. So the research later, the researchers later concluded that they had not found empirical support that pursuing sex with an ex impacts breakup recovery. Well, what is your thoughts on this? It's definitely not something I would recommend. Right? <laughs> I mean, it's the last thing that Angela and I would recommend I, I would too. Not, yeah. I would not recommend that in terms of moving on and Grieving and getting over a relationship, I think that would be going backwards. I need to move forward. Right. Yeah. Doesn't it just drag it out <laughs> <Yeah>. longer? <laughs> so the researchers say that they come just shy of recommending sex with an ex, but they say while the present research does not necessarily advocate for pursuing sex with an ex following a breakup, there may in fact be some benefits to continued sexual pursuit in the long term. Uh, they don't exactly say what those benefits are. So uh, a little. A little interesting, um, but but they say it might not hurt. I I, I don't get that. I don't get it because this is not what what uh, we would ever recommend on this podcast. Yeah, I guess maybe it's like most breakups kind of end on a negative note. So if your last interaction with them winds up being <laughs> hooking up with them post breakup, it's like oh, I have like some positive closure. I don't. But it really, it ultimately, in my experience, is even if it's good at the time, not look back on fondly that's what i think maybe maybe could be happening here is you have sex with them and you're like oh yeah that's right why i wanted to break up with you right or, maybe that's it. yeah it's like oh yeah you know i don't feel that great after this okay i feel better about the situation that we're no longer together but but i do agree i think it just prolongs things and and you're just stringing something along instead of working towards getting over somebody yeah. so not I, something I, we recommend i i mean i agree i mean unless it is something i mean the two of you are saying that, you know, maybe it has to do with a one time, you know, one more time hookup to resolve some lack of closure, if that's what they're intimating. I didn't even get that out of it, but maybe that is what they're saying. And I, I mean, again, not something I would recommend, but if that's what they're suggesting, that it helps with some closure if you have sex with them one more time, maybe, but not something that I would recommend. Agreed. Uh, all right. We are about to jump into the mailbox, but first let's take a quick sponsor break. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Tipsy Elves. Tipsy Elves is where you can get all of your amazing, ugly holiday sweaters for those holiday parties. Angela and I are big fans of ugly sweaters because we used to incorporate them into our sketch show and we used to go through great lengths to try to find the perfect ugly Christmas or ugly Hanukkah sweaters for our shows and it was really hard to find good ones. I wish Tipsy Elves had been around because they are your one-stop shop for incredible sweaters to wear around the dinner table, to parties, just around the block, around the neighborhood. These aren't the sweaters your Graham Graham used to make. They're insanely funny and unbelievably well-made. They're specific sizing for men and women, so everyone gets the perfect fit. They even have hilariously themed tees and awesome cozy onesies. Really, they've got everything. You got to check them out. They even have, uh, yeah, they've got every, you know, 
every holiday. I'm Jewish. Angela's Catholics. So we like to mix it up. I'll wear my ugly Hanukkah one. She'll wear her ugly Christmas one. It's great. You're not going to find more hilariously awesome designs anywhere else. So be sure to order from Tipsy Elves in time for your ugly Christmas sweater party or Hanukkah sweater party. And right now, my listeners get 20% off tipsyelves.com when you use our code SINGLE at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order on the site. And let's just say, Angela and I got some pretty good ones this year. Go to tipsyelves.com and enter our code SINGLE at checkout to get your 20% site-wide discount. We would like to thank our sponsor, Blue Apron. Blue Apron delivers farm-fresh ingredients and step-by-step recipes to your door. It's great for nights alone if you want to cook a meal and then maybe you'll have some like leftovers. It's also great for date nights. It's a fun thing to do together or you can really impress somebody by saying like, you know what, I'm going to cook for you. And you've got the recipe, you've got all the pre-portioned ingredients and you're still going to look like you're, you know... Mario Batali. Is Mario Batali? He's still a good no, chef, right? No. Oh, no. He's been outed. Yeah, he's bad. Oh, Mario Batali's bad. Okay, what's a chef that you want to be? Like? Ina Garten? She's still cool? I think she's acceptable. Yes, you can be Ina Garten. <laughs> okay, great. Or you could be Chef Spara. Yes, that's unproblematic completely. <laughs> um, but I am Chef Spara now. I have learned to love cooking specifically because of Blue Apron. Here's how it works. <laughs> Number one. Love being an unproblematic queen, as the kids say. Um, Number one, you choose chef-designed recipes. Number two, they deliver fresh, seasonally-inspired ingredients to your door. And then number three, you cook incredible meals in as little as 20 minutes. Um, Dinner is so quick. They especially have been making an effort lately to send really quick ones. Oh, I love that. Me too. I made a quiche the other night. It was super quick and really autumnal. It was wonderful. That's your new favorite word is autumnal. It is. And they do. They have a lot of autumnal food. Like some of their meals recently have included smoky chicken and sweet potato bake. I would say sweet potatoes are autumnal. They are. Uh, They've also had homestyle beef medallions and maple pan sauce. Maple. Autumnal. Very autumnal. Guys, check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free at blueapron.com slash single. That's blueapron.com slash single to get your first three meals free. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. All right, Angela, what do we have in the mailbox for Dr. Gutman to help us answer? Okay, first up, we have an email from an anonymous listener. She writes, I'm 30 years old and have never been in a relationship. This is something I feel a lot of shame about and only for the past three years, something that I'm completely honest about when people ask me. I feel like I get a lot of negative reactions, like something must be wrong. It makes me feel a bit worthless and that I've missed out on such a huge thing. I've never really had problems meeting men and been on many dates. It just hasn't happened. I'm pretty self-confident and like who I am. I know that I have some issues from the past with my parents, was in a healthy environment for a child, and gone to therapy. Funny thing, I happen to be a psychologist myself. Ha ha. Uh, I have a lot of friends and relatives moving in together, getting married and doing the baby thing right now. And it's always a reminder that people are moving forward. Meanwhile, I'm standing here What can I do to stop feeling this sense of shame slash unhappiness? Well, this is interesting. She's a psychologist, but she needs another psychologist to to psychoanalyze herself. I guess. (laughs) Uh, Well, first I would say to her that she's not alone. Uh, There are a lot, I see a lot of 30-year-olds that have not been in a relationship, particularly people that have been career-focused, which she clearly is. She's a psychologist, so she must have spent a lot of time you know, working in school, getting educated, then working on getting a job. So I think that there's a lot of times when we just all don't have the bandwidth to work on everything all at one time. That's true of us 
at, in all aspects of our lives. It's true of us when we're children, adolescents, and then also as adults that it's really hard to multitask and be effective in every single area of our lives all at once. And although we'd all love to believe that we are super women and superheroes, it's very hard to do that. So I think that instead of looking at this negatively, she should take a pause to reinforce herself for the fact that she's done a lot by the time she's 30. That's really impressive. Congratulations on the fact that she's a psychologist and she's working. And this may now be the time when it's going to be a little bit easier to focus on the next phase of her life, which is to be looking for a partner. And instead of looking at it from the negative, which is that it hasn't happened to her to date, I think that she can always say to anybody very honestly that her focus has been on other things, education, academia, and that now this is her time to breathe in and lean into really looking for the right person for her because now she knows herself, uh, you know, far better than she did when she was 24. Absolutely. I have so many friends that are in their 30s that are still single and dating and just because they've had a few relationships doesn't make them any more prepared to have a long-term relationship. When I met Nick, now we've been together almost nine years, which is insane to me. And before that, I had never dated anyone longer than three months. So, you know, all those like quick dates and hookups didn't necessarily prepare me uh, to have a long-term relationship. And I, meanwhile, but, but I was able to, and I had friends that had been in a lot of long-term relationships and they're still looking. So like, it's all, it doesn't matter. You know, you sh- shouldn't be anything that you're embarrassed by. I agree. All right, what else do we have in the mailbox? So our next listener kind of has a similar situation with a different spin. He's also 30 and has never dated, but this is what he writes. He says, so I'm a 30-year-old male who hasn't had romantic entanglements or touch in over a handful of years. I've had solid reasons, though, mental health issues diagnosed as bipolar as well as substance abuse. I've been stable, medicated, and clean for less than a year and extremely wary of involving myself in the lives of others. My brother recommended using Tinder to meet friends, insisting it's, quote, a thing people do nowadays. It makes sense. Anxiety for me makes translating in-person acquaintances into friendships difficult. I find it easier to be vulnerable and open specifically to the opposite sex. And in the past, my most treasured counselors, psychiatrists, friends have almost all been women. But I wonder if I'm being self-deceptive to rope women into my life. I know I need to make friends since social isolation worsens all of my issues. But my gut says that there's something off about window browsing for friends on a primarily datey thing. Thoughts? I mean, I have plenty of thoughts. But first, I want to hear about what Dr. (laughs) Gutman has to say. So I would agree with his intuition, which is that that's probably not the best thing to do. And I also think that it's important that he focus on the fact that his intuition about himself is better than anybody else's suggestions that they might make about what he should do. So uh, I think that he should give himself a shout out for the fact that he's focusing on a good decision that he probably would be more likely to make for himself, which is that that's probably not the best idea. I also agree that social isolation is not the best thing, but there are, you know, things like the sober community would agree that being in a relationship before you've even been one year sober is not the best idea, but that friendships are a good idea. And within the sober community, there are ways to make friendships with people of, uh, yes, same-sex friendships. Sometimes, you know, friendships with women are possible, in the sober community. And so if, if, you know, if you 
find that particularly more sustainable. But I think that I would look in the sober community for that. I think that, you know, you find that in, in real life better than a virtual friendships. I couldn't agree more. And also there's a lot of other like online avenues where you can talk to people online. It seems like you maybe are more comfortable like texting and typing and like using online platforms to have friendships, maybe more than in-person friendships. It kind of, at least that's what I'm gathering. So I would recommend, you know, finding what your other interests are and seeing if there's any like, I don't know. I don't, I don't do this as much, but I know they still exist. They still have like online chat rooms for different yeah. interests that you have or like Reddit communities. I know. I was going to say, I would never is, I would really want, want to recommend Reddit, but there are nice corners. There are nice there corners, are dark of corners Reddit. but there are nice corners. Yeah. There's a lot of like online groups and avenues where you can meet people of the same sex and opposite sex and have friendships. But yeah, don't use a dating platform to try to meet friends because you're wasting their time and those people are not looking for friendships. Like if you go to a, uh, an app like Bumble where they have, a friendship section of the app um but usually that's for meeting people with of the same sex i think right it's it's like girl where like women can meet women for like more like business friendship yeah. opportunities so you know if you're gonna use there and there are apps to meet friends you know i i don't use them that much but like um there's one for for like moms called peanut and that's where I can meet like other mommy friends. So I'm sure right. there's I'm other. I'm sure if you Google. I'm sure if you Google, there's other apps that are specifically just for making friends. So, but yeah, don't use a dating app to try to make girlfriends. It's just going to like, that's not what the girls are looking for. So don't do that. But, but I think it's great. You're trying to be social and there's a lot of ways to do it. And yeah, I, I think, you know, like Dr. Gutman said, try to find it within the, the sober community so that you can have people that are maybe going through the same thing that you're going through they can uh not only you'll not only will you find a friend but you'll find a support system as well um and someone that will be will have known what you've gone through and be able to talk about it right totally all right. Well, we hope that's helpful. Let us know how everything goes. If any of you other listeners want your questions answered or if you have any funny messages that you want to share, you can email us at contact at thisiswhyyoursingleshow.com. Please try to keep it under a paragraph. You can also find all of our contact info on our website at thisiswhyyoursingleshow.com. Now let's dive into our reason of the week. This week's reason is finding life satisfaction. Yes, yeah, so we talked a little bit about that earlier in the podcast, but let's expand on it a little bit more. You list a lot of things in your uh, workbook, A Path to Sustainable Life Satisfaction. So what are a few simple exercises listeners can do today to start finding life satisfaction? Because what Angela and I always say is until you're a little more satisfied within yourself, it's harder to meet other people. So you know, for all those single people out there, I think finding life a little more life satisfaction is number one thing bef to f before they find a partner. So the, how I think about sustainable life satisfaction is that there's six components to it. I've already talked about three of them. So I'm only going to mention, I, I'll review what the first three are that I've already talked about and then just give you a little bit of a, a few Perfect. Uh, bites about the other three. So we talked about the importance of closing. We talked about the importance of decision making. And we talked about the importance of facing fears. So I think that if you can find areas in your life where you can close other um, um, things in your life that you haven't other than at work, that would be good. If you can face fears in your life, things that you're trying to avoid or new avenues, that would be good. And if you can make decisions for yourself and not delegate them, that would be great in terms of uh, ways to uh, develop more sustainable life satisfaction. The other three uh, components that I think are important in terms of achieving sustainable life satisfaction is reducing people-pleasing behaviors. Uh, a lot of people 
look for to the outside world to get reinforcement and reassurance about themselves. And they also try to please people in the outside world as a way to reinforce their feelings of lovability and also to try to ensure their feelings of indispensability and make themselves not feel like they're going to be abandoned. This is particularly important that people do this in relationships. The problem is that the outside world can be very fickle and unreliable. And because of that, the outside world doesn't reciprocate this efforts in the same way that we often do. And that can lead to a lot of feelings of resentment and frustration for us. So I usually suggest to people that they start by not giving as much guidance and uh, problem solving as they would typically do unless they are asked to do it. And that will reduce some of the resentment that people feel. And also put people in a position where they start have to start to lean into a belief that the people around you will still be there even if you are not in service of them. So if you're not providing a service, you're leaning into the belief that the people around you will stay around because you're lovable for just being you and not because you're just providing them with some kind of service. And that's very important in uh, achieving sustainable life satisfaction. The next one is avoiding assumptions. We backhandedly undermine our belief in our problem-solving ability, which interferes with our feelings of self-worth by making assumptions about what we think people are going to say or what people are going to do in our lives. And when we do that, we engage in a chess game where we make assessments of what moves people are going to make, like six chess moves down the chess game, even though nobody has done anything. So in a certain situation, we may have had a conversation with a friend and then guess what that person is going to say or do, six chess moves down the line, but nothing actually may ever happen. But because of that, our behavior with that friend may change. And that friend may then be confused by why our behavior has changed. I call that preemptive coping. We're problem solving in advance of anything ever happening. But the the downside of that is that basically we are sending our brain a message that we don't think that we can problem solve should something actually happen. And I think it's important to have the frustration tolerance and the patience to wait and see if something actually does happen and then trust in our problem solving ability to act should something actually happen. And that will decrease personalization, increase self-confidence, and increase sustainable life satisfaction. The sixth component is active self-reinforcement. Active self-reinforcement is actually the hardest for people because it involves believing that you've earned a tangible reinforcer for having engaged in all five of the components that went before it that I've just mentioned and also any other things that you're doing in your life that you feel like you've successfully accomplished. People are very happy to take reinforcers from other people. Uh, if you're given a gift by someone else, it's, it's much easier to accept than accepting a gift from yourself. But I think that it's important for people to learn to receive tangible reinforcers from them, themselves, uh, to themselves as gifts, to remind themselves that they are worthy of it, that they've earned it, and not wait for the outside world to be giving that to them. Because again, the outside world is fickle and unreliable. And in order to habituate to new ways of thinking and new ways of behaving, we need to reinforce ourselves for the efforts that we're making. That is beyond helpful. Yeah. That is stuff we could all do, right? Yeah. I'm still working on the assumptions part. That's uh, where I struggle. 
Yes, <laughs> I, I really struggle with that too. Like I come up with all these stories in my head of like, I don't know, you know, it, it could be as simple as you don't hear back from somebody like yes. with a text for like an hour and a half and you're like, they hate my guts. Like right. they're doing it on purpose. I'm not important, but like you don't freaking know, you know? Yeah, and, and it's hard to shake because you're like, well, it's my my expert instinct. I'm just so smart that I know what's going on here. I know that they really, they've but seen no. the text. They're not excited about me, all that yeah, kind of stuff. Right. But you, ha- you come up with all these stories when like, mm-hmm. you don't know, maybe they're in some meeting they had to turn exactly. off their phone. They don't know. Whatever. Um, so many things that we all do. All right. On that note, it is time for our reason of the week. Breakdown. So everyone is looking for a little satisfaction in life, which explains why there are so many popular quotes about it. We're going to test Dr. Jennifer in a fill-in-the-blank game we call Can't, Can't Get, Get No, no blank Satisfaction. <laughs> All right. We are going to read a quote, and you have to try to guess which famous person said well, it. Well, you're going to fill in the blank, and you'll get bonus points if you can guess oh. who said it. <laughs> Sure, you're going to nail it. Um, Laura, you want to kick it off? Sure. Satisfaction lies in the effort, not in the attainment. Full effort is full blank. <laughs> okay, I'll give you a hint. Did you, did you ever watch the show Entourage? I don't watch television. No, you don't watch television. Good for you. Good, good for you. Um, uh, all right. This was like a phrase. This is going to be nice. I'm interested in where you're going with that. If watching Entourage? This, yeah. Um, this is a phrase that uh, Adrian Grenier, he, who does he play? Whatever. His brother on Vince. the sh- Vince, Vince's brother on the show it, it is like a Viking and he always screams <laughs> this phrase. Oh. It's victory. Uh, but but you yeah. didn't get it. So that's no. why there was the buzzard. <laughs> it was uh, Mahatma Gandhi said that. Yes. All right. Next up. Um, what's our next inspirational quote? Okay. The game of basketball has been everything to me. It's been the site of intense blank and the most intense feelings of joy and satisfaction. (laughs) Uh, So basketball, who's the greatest basketball player of all time? Michael Jordan? Yes. Yes. (laughs) So you You get a point point. for that. (laughs) So he's saying that it's been a site of intense. uh, Okay. If you're hurt, you're in a lot of pain. (gasps) <gasps> whoops no yes sorry i clicked the wrong i clicked the wrong button but you totally got that right sorry you got it you got it you got two points for that one all right next up you guys are being very nice to help me so Wait. <laughs> this is a hard one uh blank may appear attractive but work gives satisfaction this is actually someone i never would have thought of as being someone that gives inspirational quotes um uh well, she 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 had a positive outlook. She did have a positive outlook. She, uh, who is somebody who went through the worst trauma of of uh, all time? What? A young girl during World War Two. Right, World War Two. Um, Anne Frank. Yes, and she gave this quote. All right, uh, laziness was the laziness may appear uh, attractive, but work gives satisfaction. Oh. And uh-huh. Anne Frank. Yeah. All right. What do we got next? Okay. As long as a woman can look 10 years younger than her blank, she is perfectly satisfied. Okay. 
Uh, I don't like this. Who does a yeah. woman want to look younger? I'm than? like, I think I know the answer, but I don't like it. I don't like it <laughs> at all. I don't want to say it. I don't like it, even though I think I can guess it. <laughs> <laughs> what 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 is your guess? Husband, spouse, partner, or even worse, what would be even worse than that? If a woman looks ten years younger than her child, I mean, I don't know. You all those are bad. They're all bad. Oh, they're all bad. They're <laughs> yeah. all bad. It's daughter, daughter. I was gonna say, like I said, child, but those are all bad. It was right. It was Oscar Wilde, but it was in the picture of Dorian Gray. So I feel like he didn't actually agree with that quote. It was like it's still bad. pretty fucked up. Like, <laughs> some people believe this. All right. Bad. Um, next up, when I'm driving in my car and the man comes on the radio, he's telling me more and more some useless blanks supposed to fire my imagination. I can't get no satisfaction. This is a band song. Mm, useless blank. This is hard. Uh, the <laughs> band is, uh, the name of the band is also the name of a famous music magazine. Um, uh, Rolling Stone. Yeah. <laughs> And the word is information. Yeah. Uh, okay. Last one. Go uh, for it. In all our contacts, it is probably the sense of being really blank and blank, which gives us the greatest sas- satisfaction and creates the most lasting bond. So what two things give us the greatest satisfaction? <laughs> feeling feeling blank and blank feeling by somebody. Loved? It's close. Uh, Touched? for love and touch it's not correct but those are all true <laughs> needed and wanted quote by eleanor roosevelt there you go this was a hard quiz it was <laughs> you guys are very we nice. we uh <laughs> even if we that's didn't... not true you guys are very nice no it is this was a this was a tough quiz angela put together yeah even if you get 50 percent, you nailed it <laughs> um anything else you want to leave our listeners with before we close out uh I think the only thing that I would say is that if you're going to work on the some of the components for sustainable life satisfaction, it is more effective if you try to work on a little bit of all of them as opposed to cherry pick one or two of them if you're really aiming to um, achieve sustainable life satisfaction because probably you are good at some of them already and it, it's really not going to be as effective unless you're trying to work on all of them simultaneously. Great. That's important to know because, yeah, I think like, well, I'm doing one of the six. Right. I'm right. good. Okay. Exactly. But no, got to do them all. Um, well, guys, we hope we've cleared up this week's reason because that is it for this week's This Is Why You're Single podcast. Thank you so much to our guest, Jennifer Gutman. You can, Dr. Jennifer Gutman, you can purchase her workbook, A Path to Sustainable Life Satisfaction on Kindle and Amazon and check out her YouTube series at youtube.com slash Dr. Jennifer Gutman. Any other plugs we should tell people about? Um, you can find me on all social media and at my, on my website, gutmanpsychology.com. And thank you guys so much for having me. This was really fun. Thank you thank for coming you. on. A uh, little plug for ourselves. You can check out our book, This Is Why You're Single, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. And we have our audiobook that we will read to you on Audible. Yep. And you get hooked up with discounts from all of our sponsors. For a full list of sponsors and the codes, check out our podcast page on thisiswhyyoursingleshow.com. We're also on social, so you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Your Single Show. Please like and subscribe on iTunes. And thank you for listening. Tune in next week for a whole new show. Bye. Bye. This is why you're single. This is why That was a HeadGum Podcast.